In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Today's Money Tales guest is Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. Kathleen has always been financially savvy, thanks in part to her parents talking to her about money all the time. And then she and her husband were conned by the contractor next door. This rocked Kathleen's world because she thought she should know better. Rather than letting the situation get her down, Kathleen's voice for money conversation strengthened and amplified. Hi, this is Cami. Kathleen is a wealth psychology expert and founder of KBK Wealth Connection and host of the Breaking Money Silence podcast. She speaks, consults, and coaches on the topics of women and wealth and couples and money. She is also the published author of several related books. The most recent is Breaking Money Silence, How to Shatter Money Taboos. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us. Thank you. I'm really excited to break money silence with both of you. Wonderful. To get this party started, will you please give us a quick overview of your life, focusing on two to three pivotal moments that make you the person who you are today? Absolutely. As you said, uh, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, I own a firm called KBK Wealth Connection, and I am a wealth psychology expert, author, coach, and podcast host. I would say in terms of my upbringing, you know, why Am I so committed to talking about this taboo topic and especially the emotions around money? I think it has to do with a couple of different things. So the pivotal moments of being raised by a mother and father who talked about money, even though I was a girl early on and often. So it taught me a lot about money. So that was pivotal. I also think there was two things in my adulthood that stand out that really kind of speak to why I do what I do. One is that my husband and I in our mid thirties were ripped off by a crooked contractor. And so I always thought I was really good at money and I managed money well, and I had this whole image of what I was. And then all of a sudden I found out you can be smart around money and get ripped off. So that's where I started to look into this whole field of money psychology as to why could I be so financially literate yet still get ripped off. What that led to was my career and what I do now, speaking and writing and coaching uh, on the topic, and also my husband and I breaking money silence in our marriage. Uh, While we did a good job managing money, um, I realized we didn't do as good a job as we could have talking about money. And while we were never to blame for getting ripped off, nobody is, it was a contributing factor. And then the last thing I'll add, which if we get have time to get into this, we can. Um, I also realized right around that time that we got riffed off and I was looking into money psychology and saying, hey, this is something I really want to explore professionally, that I didn't realize it, but I had been a classic under-earner my whole life. So it was a pivotal moment when I realized, wait a second, I'm being really underpaid compared to my counterparts. What does this have to do with my family upbringing, my money messages, and money psychology? And I'm happy to report I am fully recovered. Bravo. (laughs) We'll want to hear about that. But fully recovered. So that's a lot in a short period of time, but those are the three things that stood out for me. That was a great overview, Kathleen. Thank you so much. Let's start with childhood. Mom and dad were talking about money. How are they doing it? And what did that cause you to think about? 
Well, mom and dad were really pretty good at talking about money. And so if you think about it, they were traditional generation. I actually had older parents. My parents are in their 90s now. And from a very early age, I don't remember not talking about money, but we specifically talked about saving money. I used to balance a checkbook with my dad for fun, as geeky as that sounds. And I can remember us having a lot of conversations. I think I was also interested in money, so it's kind of no coincidence that I have been in the financial field and uh, continue to consult the financial field. But I really think that my dad grew up with parents who didn't talk about money, so he made a commitment to make sure that myself and my sister knew about saving money, knew about balancing a checkbook, and knew that it was important to be responsible around money. So that wasn't the whole kit and caboodle of what we could have talked about money, but I think it laid a really good foundation. And I think that really did come from my dad having a father who was more of a gambler than a planner. Ooh, yeah. Kathleen, <laughs> Kathleen, what, what does being responsible with money mean to Ooh. you? Cammy, great question. Growing up, it meant that I was saving and that I was delaying gratification and that I had 25% or whatever it is in my emergency fund. As an adult, being responsible with money to me means that I am managing the inflows and outflows, that I'm not beating myself up if I make a financial mistake, but I'm learning from that mistake. And I'm engaging in financial conversations as often as I need to, even if they're uncomfortable. So the definition has certainly changed from what I thought when I was much younger. Mm -hmm. That's really well said. When you were young and you projected out into your future, did money play a role in that vision that you had for yourself? And if so, what was the role? You're going to laugh when you hear this. So when I was a young kid, I loved my cash register, and I really thought it would be cool to work with a cash register. I'm thinking five, six, seven. I had my own toy, you know, the cash register toy, loved it, would go to the, you know, five and dime. And at the time, my career aspiration was to work on the cash register. So just to be the checkout person, which would have been fine. Um, but as I grew up and as I noticed all these things around me, then I became very enamored with banking. And so it's not a surprise that one of my first jobs was being a teller and getting my own cash drawer. I know, how exciting. It then went on when I was going off to college and thinking about what I wanted to study to become a finance major with the idea that I was going to go on Wall Street and compete with the boys. And while there's nothing wrong with that, it's really good news that I didn't do that because that would not have been an environment where I ultimately would have thrived and it certainly wouldn't have allowed me to explore communication around money, psychology of money in a way, because this was the big 80s, right? Greed is good. I, I just am really glad I didn't get to follow that dream, that I got a little bit derailed, uh, got into banking and finance and auditing, which couldn't be any more different than going to Wall Street, and ultimately realized, you know what? I want a financial career, but I want it um, coaching and educating and helping management and clients do a better job financially, whether that's communication or not. So I think it's all, it's a through line through being a little girl till now, but what that looked like certainly shifted and changed over time as I got to know myself a little bit better. The picture you're painting, Kathleen, is of a young saver. And I, oh yeah, I, I, oh, yeah I feel it. So tell us, what was your first big purchase? Oh, I know. Isn't that sad? I saved up. How old was I? I was a Navy brat, so I can tell you according to where I lived. So I was in Illinois on the Navy base, and I must have been in like sixth grade. And I saved up to buy myself a tape recorder. You know, one of those old ones with the cassette tape? <laughs> All the next gens out there uh, with the cassette tape. And I remember how much it cost being a saver. It was $32. So I saved up for a really, really long time. And when I got to the commissary, because it was a Navy base with my girlfriend, it happened to be Mother's Day weekend. So I went and I bought my $32 cassette player, so proud of myself for saving that much. And then I had less than a dollar left over to buy my mother a Mother's Day gift. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended, it's really, back then you could find something, but I found this really somewhat ugly pendant 
and uh, bought her that for like 79 cents. So I was not a big spender back then. My gifts have certainly improved over time. I just have to understand, what is this tape recorder going to be used for? Are you, you going to be a life of spying or, you know, what, what, what was your vision? I think I hung out with older kids that all had albums and tape recorders and music. And, and I can't sing on tune, so it certainly wasn't about being the next superstar. I just really wanted that gadget. And uh, that is the first time I can really remember thinking, wow, I saved up and I got it. My mother was a good sport about it. Later on in my life, we joked about the fact that her gift was under a dollar and that I bought this expensive thing for myself. <laughs> well, I'm sure she saw the pride of, that you exhibited from making the purchase. So I'm, I'm sure that warmed <laughs> her heart. The message was saving, right? So the fact that I saved, I think, was really reinforced as a good thing. I do want to just say one quick thing, and that I became an oversaver. I actually became too frugal in my mind and, and somewhat, uh, dare I say, cheap in my 20s. So a lot of times, some of my girlfriends or friends would be going out, and I would feel like I couldn't spend money on things like going out. And ultimately, uh, early on, I think missed out on some experiences that I... I wish I hadn't missed out on, but I am fortunate enough that I married a, a spender and surrounded myself with some girlfriends that allowed me to loosen up a little bit and, uh, you know, save appropriately, but not oversave because there is such a thing. Kathleen, how did you come to that discovery? I think it was slowly over time that I realized that I was not enjoying life to the fullest. And so when I talk about oversaving, the good news is I have I still have a lot in my retirement account. You know, I'm really good at being quote unquote responsible in the way I was raised. I think what I started to realize is that it wasn't normal or natural to go and buy something at a store and then immediately feel incredibly guilty for having spent money on myself. So I was, I got better at gift giving. I could invest money in a gift and give it to somebody, but it was hard to receive something financially. And so I worked on that. And then eventually when I found the field of money psychology, you really need to do your own work first. I was able to, to pinpoint, wow, that doesn't make me feel very good. And, and how can I change it? So it actually was a big deal that I bought something at retail, at the actual retail price. And believe it or not, I remember what that thing is. I bought a shirt. I bought it at J. Jill. And I bought it with my co-author. My first book was co-authored. And we were going to our book signing for the first time. And it was the first time I bought something retail. So I was probably early 30s. So it took me a while. Retail's no longer a problem for me. <laughs> so Kathleen, you were, you were enjoying a career in finance and banking. And then you decided to pivot. And you went into coaching and helping people with money? Close, close. So I've had three careers all good in different ways. So when I started and I, I graduated from college, I worked for the FDIC as a bank examiner, became a commission bank examiner. And I did like working with management and leading the team, but I didn't like just giving feedback that was critical, but that's the job of the auditor or was at the time. And then I did a complete pivot and went back to school and studied counseling psychology. I had always been interested in psychology, but I was raised once again to do the conservative, the right type of job, something that would make you a certain amount of money and certainly feelings and psychology was not something that flourished in my family. So I went back and got my master's while I was a FDIC bank examiner. <laughs> so I'm FDIC bank examiner. I'm getting my master's in counseling psychology. Uh, people are looking at me like, you're crazy. You have a successful career. What are you doing? And then I just took a leap and I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. So I completely shifted careers, uh, was in uh, mental health for 15 years, had my own business, always been very entrepreneurial. And then started to burn out and said, you know what, when I realized I was an under earner, and if you want to be an under earner, often counseling, psychology, or social work is the way to go because you're doing good things. And I realized I don't want to under earn anymore. So I took everything that I love about finance, which is more the education, the communication stuff, and everything that I liked about being a counselor, which was empowering people, uh, educating people, inspiring people. And that's when I created KBK Wealth Connections. So that is the company I'm going to stay with. I feel like third time's a charm. 
and I incorporated in 2007 and uh, have been working in the financial services field and with women ever since. That's great. Kathleen, what is, what's an under earner? What do you, how do you define that? It's interesting. So anybody who's ever heard of Barbara Stanny, she wrote the book, Prince Charming Isn't Coming Anymore. And her second book was Overcoming Under Earning. She has since written other books as well. But the under earner is somebody who never asks for a raise, you know, feels grateful to have a job, never does the research to see if they're being paid competitively. Often, I think there's a guilt with making money. You know, one of the things I had to personally get over and I help other women get over is the fear of success and that financially, if you're successful, what does that mean? And so a classic under earner is just always that worker bee that is never truly communicating their value or being paid for their value. And so I don't know about the research around gender split, but my guess is it may happen more to women than men, although I have seen men in that position as well. And did you realize it at the time or was that an evolution? It was an evolution. I I can't remember one thing I said when I worked at the FDIC right before I left to go finish my master's degree. I said to one of my mentees, so I was supervising this individual, and I told him I thought we made too much money. As FDIC bank examiners, we made too much money. And looking back, it wasn't that we made too much money. It was that I was uncomfortable making that much money at such a young age. So it was very unconscious. I then transitioned to a career where really you make a lot less money. And I think it was only over time of building my own business and realizing if I'm going to be profitable, I better learn how to ask for what I'm worth and get paid what I'm worth. Um, And I've actually enjoyed it. It's not like it was this big struggle. I mean, I think when I realized it, it's been a challenge, but it's been a welcome challenge. And it feels really good to be able to ask for what you're worth, to not be an under earner, and to also be able to walk away if someone isn't able to see your value. It's it's really interesting because you talked about your initial goal, career goal was to go dominate on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that that conjures up images of someone very focused on wealth, yet you, it sounds like your reason for doing that wasn't wealth-driven. I know, and I've never really thought about it, Cammie, so this is going to be, you know... Kathleen Burns Kingsbury unplugged. Uh, <laughs> Love it. I I I think it had to do with what I thought the world wanted me to do as a smart, educated woman in a family where banking, finance, security was a good thing. So it was my way, in a weird way, of kind of rebelling. What I ended up doing and working for the government actually makes more sense. The Wall Street would have been the rebellion part. And when I went off to become an entrepreneur, I can't say my family didn't support me, but I don't think they ever fully understood. In fact, I'm not sure that they understand now what drives me and why that's so much fun for me. Um, So I think it had to do, I think the Wall Street was my way of rebelling and I just figured out a healthy more aligned way of rebelling and doing good than throwing myself in a situation where I really, I really would have crumbled. I'm too feeling oriented. I'm not thick skinned enough uh, for that endeavor. Kathleen, I'm curious, in those under earning years, what impact did that have on your spending and savings? Because it sounds like you, we know you're already a disciplined saver, but if you were bringing in as much money does that mean you were saving less or did you recalibrate your spending so you were spending less? I probably saved, well, I save, a, I would say I probably saved the same percentage that I save. I mean, I haven't done that, the charts and graphs and crunched the numbers, although we do work with financial advisors. I think that my spending was so minimal that I didn't spend very much, that everything I made, I mean, I think about what I made in my 20s, early 20s, I was doing fairly well for my early 20s. And everything went into savings, whereas some of my friends were doing things that aren't that radical, but actually make a lot of sense from a wealth building standpoint of putting down payments on houses or investing in a little bit more of an aggressive way. I mean, my parents and my family taught me about saving and they taught me about 
um, how to spend wisely, but we didn't talk about investments. I didn't understand that it was important to take a risk to actually get a good return. So I, I didn't really understand any of that. I think that when I did start making more money and asking for my worth, one of the fun parts was being able to then buy myself stuff and feel good about it. And, you know, that's a process in itself. In fact, I wrote a workbook years ago called uh, Creating Wealth from the Inside Out, self-published. And one of the chapters talks about practicing receiving. And so when my husband and I got ripped off by this contractor, I was still a counselor, but I was slowly transitioning into money psychology. And one of the things I did is I went out to lunch with a girlfriend. So I finally started, let me just I finally started to feel like I could spend a little bit more of my money. I was a successful counselor. I was making a decent amount. My husband certainly has always done well. Normally, I would go out to lunch and I would always pick up the tab or we'd at least split the tab. Well, we had just been ripped off by the contractor. We had lost a large amount of money. It was pretty uncertain. And I did what anybody would do is you go back to kind of uh, your initial money personality. And mine was very restrictive. So I sat down at lunch. We, I remember I had a salad. She had a sandwich. Good friend of mine. And at the end, I said, let me pick up the tab. She goes, don't be ridiculous. She goes, I know what you're going through. Like, it's fine. I can pay for this $10 salad. And I'm like, no, 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 let's split it. And finally, she, we're, we're pulling the bill back and forth. And she screams at me. She goes, Kathleen, will you practice receiving for God's sakes? And I, it hit me. And I was like, wow, it is that hard for me to receive money. And so eventually it made it into my workbook and I had little pins printed up. I still have some of them. You know how tchotchkes lay around <laughs> forever that say practice receiving. So I think it really was this process of realizing that whether I'm making, you know, $10,000 a year or $200,000 a year, I'm worthy of receiving. And so um, I have my friend who was <laughs> bold enough to yell at me and say, practice receiving. And that's become kind of a joke. And, and over time, when you say that, you, lo and behold, it becomes easier to receive money. Kathleen, this pivotal moment that you shared with us about the contractor ripping you off. Mm. Why do you feel you, you mentioned that you're, you're smart with money at that time, but you reflect on that experience as if you weren't strong with money. Would you say more about why that experience is so pivotal from a money psychology standpoint? So I think in general, what happened to, to me, and my husband and I went through it together, but had very different experiences. It was a contractor who was going to build an addition on our house. He was the contractor I didn't want to hire. My husband wanted to hire him. And I basically said, stop to myself, stop being so controlling. Just trust Brian's my husband's name. Just trust Brian. We'll be fine. And so the project started and this contractor, I, I kept thinking he was asking for advances that I didn't think he deserved to ask for. And so there started to be some conflict with my husband. And uh, eventually I said, let me negotiate this next piece of the work. And that contractor conned me too. And so when he just up and left, he abandoned our project. He happened to be our neighbor. He was gone. He had three mortgages on a house. You know, we never saw him again. It was bad. And so Brian and I had this image that we were really great at money and we we're doing great. And we were talking about money and we, it really blew our world wide open. I got very restrictive, got very angry and felt a lot of shame. So I think the money shame I felt, which I think other people feel when they get ripped off. Remember, I was raised to be responsible. It is not a responsible thing to get ripped off, right? I know that doesn't fully make sense, but in my family, you know, if you were responsible, this wouldn't happen. And so Brian came from a family where they could hardly uh, pay the bills. So getting ripped off or not having a lot of money while he was really angry about it, he handled it completely differently. He kind of went into his own world, played video games, and I did like spreadsheets. <laughs> and so eventually it got to a place where my money shame and his, in my opinion, not dealing with it, not feeling anything about it, kind of blew up. And that is when together we decided, okay, we can borrow stuff from each other that could be really helpful, that I could help him deal a little bit and he could help me calm down a little bit. And I can remember sitting down and doing a budget together and realizing this is, you know, I don't mean to be insulting to my partner, but I was like, oh, he's, he's good at Excel. 
<laughs> he actually knows how to do a budget. Like, you know, we had been married like 12 years and I was like, oh, he's good at Excel. You know, he's an engineer. He, of course he's good at Excel. So th- this pivotal moment, I think it really shifted me because I was able to realize you can be financially literate, but still not have an understanding of your relationship with money. And there is a lot more to it than just dollars and cents. And I think that's the pivotal moment where I started to explore this field. And I have a habit of when I learn something for myself, I then want to share the wealth. So that's when it became a career. Kathleen, there's a lot in there. And I'm just curious if you could go back to when you were being conned. Yep. Try to put yourself into your body and your mind at that time. What was triggering the shame specifically? You're good at money. This person was conning you, but... That's very intellectual, okay? So intellectually, I totally get that if someone's conning you, they've committed the crime. I don't know if either of one of you have been conned before, but you are left with a lot of anger, frustration. And I, I think it really tapped into shame for me in that, and there's a money piece there. There's also, I'm a recovered perfectionist. So if things weren't perfect, then it was my fault. Once again, not true, but that's what I felt. And so so I I overly took responsibility. I didn't turn to my husband and say it was your fault. I thought it was my fault. And so that belief that I was bad for messing up with money, I think runs really deep. I think it's been there, probably part of my money personality, part of my upbringing. I wouldn't say it's one or the other because I don't believe my sister has the same experience, but I don't know for sure. And that I was just left really feeling pretty crappy. Now, the gift of feeling that bad was then I got help. And I looked at my relationship with money in a whole new way and realized that I needed to share more with my husband, that we needed to talk about it together, that it wasn't, I wasn't responsible for the con artist that was probably, he must have been on drugs. I mean, we, we never fully figured out what was going on, but there was something really off. We weren't the only ones, by the way, because we lived right next to him. People would walk up to our house, knock on the door. And say, uh, hey, we saw that your addition's not done. Did Steve do your addition? Yeah, Steve. Oh, yeah. Well, do you know where he is? No. Well, he, you know, he's left to abandon our property. And a lot of these people were like, oh, we lost $1,500. Where in total, Brian and I probably lost sixty grand, and then And then had to find another builder. So we don't really trust builders very much. I'll, sorry, but it's where I am not the most trustworthy person when it comes to construction. That sounds like a really hard experience. And I appreciate you going into that level of detail because I think, you know, one of the the big ahas is that our relationships with money can be triggered by all sorts of different situations. Yes. And I I actually think that, well, I wouldn't want to go through that again. I think it strengthened my husband and I's relationship. It certainly, I thank Steve with my transition and pivot to money psychology. I didn't know there was such a field before I needed a little bit of help. And I also believe that pivotal moments can be really quiet too. So that was a pretty loud one. I mean, everybody drove by our house and saw our undone edition, which really was lovely, would meet people and be like, oh, are you that house with that undone? Yeah, that's me. But it also can be really subtle. Like when I started my own business and I realized that I was volunteering 20 hours of the week and only had 20 hours billable and that I'd never be profitable if I didn't learn how to make money. And so the very subtle message that it took me a long time to realize is that I was afraid of success, of financial success, of receiving. It was a very quiet, pivotal moment. But if I didn't get through it, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. I'd be working for somebody else, which would be fine, but it wouldn't be what I wanted to do. So it can be loud, like someone rips you off, or it can be really quiet, like there's this insidious, "Hmm, something's not right, something's not right. How do you define your relationship with money today? I think it's healthy. I mean, I think it's a journey. So, you know, we could end this podcast and tomorrow something could happen and I'd learn (laughs) something else about myself. Uh, I think I am much more accepting of the fact that you don't have to be perfect around money to be responsible. So I've reframed that definition. 
I also believe that in having all these money conversations with people around me as part of doing research for my fifth book, as well as just, you know, all the talking and coaching and podcasting I do has really helped me understand that everybody has a unique relationship with money and, and it isn't good or bad. It's just uh, your journey with money. So that's been helpful. Uh, my husband's been supportive and much more actively involved and is really good at certain aspects of finance. And so that's been nice. Um, and I think the other thing that is important with a healthy relationship with money is I do think it's important to have a financial team. We've always had a financial team, but I really now look for advisors who are going to address the emotional aspects, the values, the goals, all that stuff. Uh, because for me and for my husband, that is vital. I don't want to just do investments and get caught up in, in how much I'm making. I want to know that I'm having an impact in the world and living the life I want to live. And it's good to have money to do that. So Kathleen, let's go back to the addition situation. So that disaster caused you and Brian to have more conversations about money. And you also mentioned that you got some help. And so I'm curious, what help did you get? And, or was that help part of the catalyst for you and Brian having these, these conversations with each other? It was a combination of things. We certainly pulled upon uh, the financial people in our lives. So we did have a financial advisor at the time. So we talked to him a little bit about the concrete, you know, dollars and cents of things and what that meant for our financial future. We, I also, uh, along with Brian, reached out to some government resources that would help us be able to potentially recoup some of those losses because that contractor was licensed. We did recoup a very small amount, but that certainly was helpful. And it felt like we got a little justice. And then I also was involved at the time in a coach training program where I started to do, I think it was a practicum where you had to work with a coach for a certain period of time. So I really focused in on that particular situation and received uh, I would say life coaching and money coaching. It wasn't 100% money coaching. Um, and prior to that, because I had been a therapist, I was no stranger to therapy. So that was also a, a resource. I think Brian and I have a pretty good ability to talk about things. So a lot of times I would bring stuff home and then we'd process it and work through it. And I know he learned a lot um, from the process as well. Any tips for some of our Money Tales listeners who might be going through something similar with their partner? You talked about how you and Brian had different reactions to the disaster and that can be a, a, having different reactions can often be a challenge toward having productive conversations, especially around money. Yeah. So I, I'll tell you what we use, but let me, let me just share this quick story because this is often how I talk about it. We are maybe two, three months after getting ripped off. I am, you know, freaking out, very restrictive around money, worried that we're not going to be able to pay the mortgage. Although in reality, we were able to pay the mortgage. It was kind of my overreaction. Um, I, it was the old days when you used to go out and get the mortgage bill in the mailbox. So I went and walked in with the bills in my hand, totally stressed out. And I had this moment where I looked and there's my husband, God love him, playing a video game in the living room, you know, shooting things. It, it, definitely in his kid zone, right? And instead of doing what I had been doing for three months, which is like, what the heck are you doing? Like, and getting angry, I stopped and I thought, okay, if this was a client of mine, what would I do? And so I said, Brian, will you do me a favor? I have a question for you. And he goes, yes. And he put down the gaming consult, so credit to Bri. And he looked up, he goes, what's the question? I said, well, I'm really curious, Brian, when are you going to start to worry about our financial situation? And he paused and he thought, and he goes, when, when they come to repo our TV. And I said, what? I said, because I'm already freaking out that we don't have 25% of our annual gross income in an emergency fund. And you're waiting for the person to repo our TV. I mean, <laughs> we had cars and all sorts of other valuable stuff. And then we just, we always have a good sense of humor. We started hysterically laughing. And it was the first time we realized that we were raised incredibly different around money. And 
often what I'll talk about with my coaching clients or in my speaking engagements is that I really think if you're a couple, whether you're struggling or not, it's really important to talk about your money mindset. What are your automatic thoughts and beliefs about money and how does that impact your behavior, whether that's your saving, your spending, your gifting, your financial conversations. And so when Brian and I could start to talk about, wow, I was raised in a really conservative way and you were raised by a single mom who just really needed to put food on the table and how that has been a very different path to where we are now. And so when we got ripped off, we each went back to our childhood kind of for lack of a better word, comfort zones, which were colliding. And so at that point in time, we were able to talk through, and this isn't one conversation, this is over time, really getting to a place of, okay, so what's your strength? What's my strength? How do we want to do this thing called money? And so I think some couples are capable of doing that. Um, You aren't better or worse if you're capable of doing that. Uh, I think if, you know, he married a therapist, so he knew what he was in for. Um, but uh, if, you, if you have trouble, then you're going to want to use some resources like somebody who's a money coach or a financial therapist or a counselor who really is good at the financial communication piece, which is sometimes hard to find, but getting easier to find. And so I think, and even a financial advisor who is well-versed in these types of conversations. It's not every financial advisor. But I think having somebody outside who is neutral to help uh, facilitate that conversation can be really useful. I've done it for other couples. There have certainly been times where I wouldn't say it's formally been done with Brian and I, but it's informally been done and it's been really useful. Mm, it's, it's great. I, so it was long-winded, but that's, that's pretty much how it, what I think is we need to talk about money mindsets more but while we're dating, not when we're already getting ripped off or in a stressful situation. Yeah, and I was thinking your pivotal moment caused you, what you said was breaking your money silence mm-hmm. with Brian and what a what a powerful, maybe we'll even call it a gift. And today, do you, how do you all approach your conversations? Is it, how do you make sure you're continue to have those financial money conversations? I'll answer that. I just have to say one more thing about what I realized when we started having money conversations is that when we got engaged, the first, I'm not kidding you, after telling mom and dad on both sides, the first thing we did is we went to the bank and we opened up a bank account that I controlled. No idea. He was not good with money. I was good with money. So I like took over unconsciously right away. Not the best, (laughs) not the best decision. You flash forward to today, we do a couple of different things. Um, Some of them are more formal, like uh, tomorrow we're meeting with our financial advisor and we have been working with financial planners and financial advisors before then, but certainly in a different way since then. So we make sure we're with holistic advisors who do, you know, soup to nuts in terms of our financial life. So that is a point, you know, maybe two to four times a year, uh, unless something comes up, a conversation with them, which facilitates conversations with us. And then um, somewhat informally, uh, you know, sometimes we'll say, hey, I think we need to have a money conversation. So it could be him, it could be me. And we'll sit down and we'll have maybe a 20, 30 minute money conversation. And I always want to pair that with something that's fun. So we like to bike, we like to kayak, we like to ski, we're pretty active. So if we're going to have a money conversation, we usually try to do something fun afterwards. So it gets paired with, oh, this was great. Look how adult we were. (laughs) Now Let's go play and enjoy ourselves. So for us, that works. Um, But I think, you know, coming up with a structure that works in your partnership is really important because I have learned through this process, one of the books I wrote was How to Give Financial Advice to Couples, that every couple does it so differently that it's, I don't think it's a one cookie cutter, like one size fits all. I think it's you deciding with your partner, how is this going to work for you? And then tweaking it because we're much different than we were in our 20s now that we're in our 50s. Kathleen, it sounds like you and Brian have really found a system that works well for you. I'm curious, what's the most challenging money conversations for the two of you to have today? Two things came to mind and I'll just blurt out the two and we can go either direction. (laughs) Taxes, because I still do the taxes. Um, I farm it out to somebody, but because I own a business and, you know, it falls on me and I would love for it to fall on him. 
And uh, the other thing is, and we don't necessarily fight over it, but it is a point of contention when it comes to him buying, or and it could be for me, but bikes, skis, you know, we have a ridiculous number of skis and a ridiculous number of bikes for two people. And, you know, we'll have conversations of like, do we really need a new bike? I mean, I love when he buys a new bike because he bikes every day, but he'll want to buy me a new bike at the same time. And I'm like, this doesn't, we don't need this 12th bike in the house for two people. <laughs> I mean, I practice receiving, but you know, more stuff isn't better. I think it'd be interesting. I wish he was here to be able to ask him what he would think. He'd probably say taxes and something else. So what is it about the taxes? Hmm, that's a good question. I think it's that it's, it's one of those tasks that falls to me. And I'll give you an example. I was thinking about, I actually did. I changed uh, our accountant this year and I was thinking about changing the accountant. And I said to Brian, what do you think? And he goes, it, everything you said, I think maybe you should look for somebody else. Notice how you should look for somebody else. And I said, well, what if, what if we looked at it together? He goes, well, I think ultimately it's up to you because we both know you are going to do it. <laughs> now I could have pushed back and said, no, you know, I didn't. Uh, and we found somebody that works for this year. But it's definitely his mindset, at least from my perspective, is you have a business, you have more tax implications, you're going to do the taxes. And some of that may be true, but that's the way it's always fallen. And uh, if I said to him, we're going to a tax meeting, I really need you to be there, he would come and he'd probably have some really good things to say, but we haven't gotten there yet. Plus, I want to get the taxes done on time, Sandy and Cammie, so it'd be very anxiety-provoking. I feel like you'd pay a late fee, and I couldn't handle that. <laughs> These are great conversations. Um, Kathleen, you are in, really accomplished uh, this passion uh, for a topic that is near and dear to our heart. You've been an author, a speaker, a coach. What prompted you to launch your podcast, Breaking Money Silence? So I was writing my fifth book. Breaking Money Silence, and I was doing research for it. And I realized, okay, I know what I think about money. I know what my friends think about money because I've talked to them. Um, but I don't know what a lot of these other people think. So I'll just do this little podcast and I'll interview people and that will give me some idea of what are the money myths that are out there? What are some of the uh, messages that people have? And then I'll incorporate that in the book. So that happened a year before. So I think I started in 2016. My book was published in 2017. And I realized uh, slowly over time that I was really burnt out from writing. Five books is a lot. I still write, but I don't have a book in me right now. And that podcasting was another creative outlet that I could use that would access you know, my writing skills, my interviewing skills, but be very different. And so I'm happy to report, I don't even no, I think I'm on my 127th episode. Um, so it just kept going and it kept building. And I've just had a lot of fun with it because it's creative, it's different. And I like the idea, similar to your show, that I am role modeling, not perfectly, but role modeling how to have these taboo conversations. And I've made a point of not just having uh, financial advisors, uh, which is where I kind of started, but I've had musicians, I've had brewers, I've had somebody who works in the cannabis industry. So all over the place, just people that have different perspectives. It's really kind of fun. The most, most interesting thing you've learned as a podcaster? So the first thing is that you can be up on stage and give a keynote, and that's a very different skill than podcasting. I would say that it's a skill just like any other skill. And so that was a realization. Uh, I think the other thing is that if I had, I have sponsors, but if I had more support and sponsorship, I think I would get very, very creative and I would love to do that. I just have so many other things going on that I haven't been able to do that. So it's, it's I think I've learned how complex it can be and how challenging it can be, but it's a challenge that I'm really enjoying, similar to what I used to enjoy, you know, writing new books. Well, we, uh, we wish you continued success with the podcast for sure. And Thank we you. applaud you on what you're doing. What one piece of wisdom would you like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in our conversation today? I think I'm going to speak specifically to the women out there who are career oriented, whether it is you work for somebody else, you have a business that you're running, even if you're working part-time, I think it's really important for us to look at what does financial success mean to us and what is it like to receive money? 
because in our society, it's complex. It's much more complex for women. There's a bunch of double messages. And so I just think it's really important for people to look at their relationship with money in context to their gender and being financially successful. And so it's not a concrete tip. It's, it's more of a coaching inquiry. Because I think if more of us thought about that, spoke about that, that we would eventually do better uh, negotiating, do better closing the gender wage gap, and, and just there'd be less of a taboo about women talking about money, being profit-oriented, and you know, just doing what, what all the guys are doing. And Kathleen, related to that, do you have any recommendations around negotiating? We really need to start with what is our negotiation mindset? What are those automatic thoughts and beliefs? I just got off the phone with someone today I was coaching, and she started with, I don't want to appear ungrateful. Now, I don't know how asking for a fair wage is being ungrateful, but I think we need to unpack that stuff. Like, I'm not sure many men would think that they were ungrateful in asking for a raise. I could be wrong. You can get fan mail and you can let me know. But I think we need to take the first step of looking at our psychology around negotiations, our negotiation mindset, and then build on the skills. And so uh, one of the things that I recently did during pandemic time was I developed a Breaking Money Silence Learning Lab, which is an online suite of courses. Uh, There's one that's free called How to conquer the fear of negotiation, all about the emotions of negotiation, and another one which is negotiating your fees with confidence. And each starts with looking at your negotiation mindset and then building upon that to develop the skills that you need to to ask for an equitable wage. So that success piece, I think, is the thing that that really keeps coming back for me that we need to really be talking about more. Kathleen, what do you most want to do that you haven't done yet? I want to ski in South America in Chile. I want to camp in Iceland in one of those campers. I think that would be super cool. And I just want to keep doing the good work I'm doing and having great conversations like we're having today. And then my life will be good. It's all about impact for me. It's not about dollars and cents. It's about what kind of impact I can have. And I want to change the world, I think, kind of like you two do as well. Kathleen, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? It's actually going to be with our financial advisors. And we're going, because we have a meeting tomorrow, So we will be, my husband and I will be having that conversation with our financial team and we're going to talk about ESG. So I want to talk more about where my money is going and what kind of impact I'm having with my investment. Sounds like complete values alignment in your life. Trying. I'm trying, Sandy. (laughs) Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. It was a pleasure to talk with you and learn your money lessons and how you are sharing your learnings to make with others to make the world a better place. So thank you for that and, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Sandy. And thank you, Cami. This has been a lot of fun to have this money conversation with you. Keep up the great work. Hey, Cami, it was so great to talk with Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, someone who is cut from the same cloth as us in terms of wanting to get more people talking about money She's very committed to breaking money silence, and I applaud her for that. But tell me, what was your biggest takeaway from Kathleen's money tales? Well, you know, Sandy, one thing I was I was thinking about with her is how she was really raised to talk about money very early on. Money was in their conversations often, and so she grew up where she was very responsible with money, and she saved. She delayed her gratification, but then she realized in, in hindsight that she became an oversaver and she felt she couldn't spend money on going out with friends or enjoying it. And that then she me- meets and marries her husband. She married a spender, which she stated really helped her in seeing that there's a problem with being an oversaver. You should also be able to spend and enjoy the money and the fruits of your labor. Sandy, tell me about you. What was your biggest takeaway from our conversation with Kathleen? I thought it was really interesting that she became aware that she was an under earner and that she took on that challenge and changed her mindset and changed her ways. And I think that's a hard thing for people to do, but I think it's really important. This is something that came up with Elizabeth Lesser, know your worth ask for it. And if you're not comfortable asking for it, get some help, get some coaching. 
And I really like what Kathleen had to say about the amplification of pivotal moments. How they could be really loud, like in the case of her and her husband being conned by the crooked contractor next door, or they could be really quiet, which was the case of of her under-earning experience. Mm. And yet Kathleen and her husband responded differently to the con. Kathleen felt a lot of money shame, and her husband sort of ignored it. It sounded like that kind of festered for a while, but it ultimately led to this, what I, what sounded like a quiet, pivotal moment. One, they learned that they needed to talk even more. They were really successful at having these money conversations previously, but the, she realized they weren't talking enough about money. And I think that's an important message that, you know, we always can get better. Absolutely. And I'm appreciative of Kathleen for sharing that story with us, because I think it's a common one where two or more people can go through the same situation and have an entirely different reaction. And that's why having those money conversations are so, so important because it gives the people involved the opportunity to share their points of view and to get on common ground. If the conversation doesn't happen, there's just so much room for assumptions. Mm. And in my experience, I see people making all the wrong assumptions. Uh, I've been guilty of that myself. And so having the conversations, even though they can be difficult, I think are very helpful. It's going through a little bit of short-term hurt in order to avoid some longer-term harm to relationships. Mm. I've been guilty of of not having those conversations as well, Sandy, and it does, it, it festers. It's fantastic to see one of the quiet, pivotal moments being through these conversations with her husband, finding her, her true passion and this journey to become, first of all, to no longer be an under-earner and then to become a wealth psychology expert. This was her calling and she found it and she found it through this experience. So maybe that was a quiet, subtle, pivotal moment or a really loud one. I think the idea of those amplifications are really important. You don't have to wait till the alarm bell sounds for us to realize that there's some money conversations that we can be having. The importance is to be aware. Kathleen and the humility that she was sharing really led a great example for all of us because even people who are very savvy about money can have experiences where they have some regrets and they need to work through those regrets. Just like everything else in life, each experience is a learning opportunity. So I'm just very appreciative of Kathleen for all that she shared with us. There's so much to to learn and Kathleen was a great teacher. Mm. Thank you, Kathleen. Absolutely. Thanks, Kathleen. And thank you again to our listeners. Remember, you can always email us at podcasts at aspirant.com. We'd love to hear your own money tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirant.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.